Christmas is a divine invitation to celebrate. Today, we're going to conclude the invitation so you can continue in the celebration. Hopefully, you got this bookmark on the way in. If you didn't, you can get one on the way out. But it gives you all of our points, and you can keep it in your Bible, and you can rehearse them throughout the year to show you all the things that we celebrate. There are nine of them. There are more than nine, but the word celebrate only has nine letters. So that's why we only gave you nine points. But to understand what they are, we began six weeks ago telling you about this divine invitation. What are we celebrating? We are celebrating the communication of unspeakable joy. We bring you good news of great joy. Why? For in this day, the city of David has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's what we celebrate. And then we move on to point number two, which was the, the expression of unbelievable mystery. There's a mystery surrounding everything about the cross and the cradle, the manger, and the ministry of the Messiah. That's why the Bible says in 1 Timothy 3 that this is the mystery of godliness. Because there's so much there that's unfolded for us as the veil is removed from our eyes. We celebrate the, the liberation of unbearable captivity. Every one of us are taken captive by Satan to do his will. The Bible says we're in bondage to Satan, and yet there needs to be a liberation. We need to be set free from all of that. The only one who can do that is Christ himself, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Then we moved on to point number four, which was the exaltation of unfathomable majesty. Everything about our Lord is majestic. And Isaiah 9, 6 points to the fact that he is the, the prince of peace and he's the mighty God, the everlasting father. He is, he is the God of the universe and he has come down to man. And then we looked at the fifth point, which was the fact that we are the benefaction of unachievable mercy. We've been the recipients of something we cannot earn. It's the beauty of God's mercy that God allows us to understand the reason he came and why we can embrace him as Lord and Savior. Then there was the revelation of unsurpassable sovereignty. Everything about the coming of the Messiah was under the sovereign plan of God. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. And then we looked at the affirmation of unalterable prophecy. We affirmed the fact that everything that was said about the coming of the Messiah could never be changed. Why? Because it was set in stone. God said it. It happened exactly as he said to give us the assurance that when he comes again, it'll happen just like he said. Today, point number eight, point number nine, and point number eight is this. What are we celebrating? We are celebrating the transformation of unlovable humanity. The transformation of unlovable humanity. We don't see ourselves as unlovable. I got news for you. You are. I know you think you're lovely, but you're really not. The Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. 
The Bible says that we are defiled and depraved and destitute. The Bible says that we are separated from the true and living God. And the Bible says in Luke 19.10 that the Lord came to seek and to save that which was lost. We were lost in our sin. And there was nothing about us that makes us lovable. Because the Bible says in Romans 3 that we are in bondage to evil. 1 John 5, we're enslaved to the will of Satan. Romans 1, we're under the wrath of God. And we are spiritually dead and without hope. And yet we tend to think that we can do God a favor by being a part of his kingdom. Because we think we're better than we really are. But we're not. In fact, listen to what the Bible says in the book of Psalms. Psalm 5, verse number 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, for God hates all those who do iniquity. So if you do iniquity, the Bible says that God hates you. So what would make you think that you're lovable? And then the Bible says this, Psalm 7. Psalm 7, verse number 11. God is a righteous judge. And the God who has indignation every day. In other words, God is filled with indignation. He is filled with wrath every day simply because he is a righteous judge. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. And then over in Psalm 11, these words are Written, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. The one who loves to do violence, God hates that soul. You say, well, that just sounds so unlike the God I know. Really? Maybe you didn't read the Bible good enough. Because the reality of the, uh, of the matter is, is this, that, that God is a righteous judge. He has no unrighteousness in him. So everything he does is pure, true, and holy. Psalm 45, verse number 7. These words are recorded. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. You have heard the words of Romans 9, 33. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Say, wait, time out. You mean to tell me that God hates Esau? Now remember, God never told Esau that he hated him in the book of Genesis. That's taken from the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse number 1. That's very important to understand that. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. The descendants of Esau are the Edomites. They lived in a place called Petra. Obadiah speaks of the prophecy against them, how God's going to destroy them. And yet, we must realize that the reason God hated Esau is because they 
the nation of Edom had taken on the characteristic of their father Esau, who was immoral, who was idolatrous, who broke the law by marrying Canaanite women, who lived a life of rebellion, who defied his birthright, turned his back against God, and those people, the Edomites, two nations, one Jacob, one Esau, one Israel, one the Edomites, God says, Israel's my chosen people. But those who follow in the footstep of Esau, I hate. Why? Because they've rebelled against me. They've turned away from me. They don't want to follow me. And yet, it is true that God still saves the descendants of Edom. Those are the Palestinians today, by the way, just in case you didn't know who that was. The Palestinians are the descendants of Esau. And God still saves Palestinian people because that's the beauty of God's love. You see, we don't understand our most favored attribute of God, which is his love, because we don't understand love in the way that God loves. See, God is in the business of transforming people's lives. And the people he transforms is unlovable humanity. That's what makes his love so transformational. Because he takes those who have rebelled against God, sinned against God, turned their back against God, and saves them. That's why the Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, Romans 2, verse number 4. That's why the Bible says God's love, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, the love is patient and the love is kind. The definite article appears before patient and kind in 1 Corinthians 13 to, to describe for us a specific kind of love. It's God's love. The love of God is patient. The love of God is kind. In other words, God is long-suffering. He is patient. And all the while he is patient towards you, he bestows goodness and kindness towards you. Even though, even though his soul hates all those who do violence. Even though he hates all those who do iniquity. God transforms people's lives. He takes them and turns them around. He converts them. That's what conversion is. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse number 10, to turn to God from idols in order to serve the true and living God. There's an about face when a person is, is changed. And what happens when he's changed? There's a new spirit. There's a new song. There's a new life. Everything about him's new. Why? because he's been transformed from the inside out. This is so important. Next week, I'm gonna, I'm gonna preach on, on what has taken place in Canada. I've been asked to preach on that, and so I'm going to do so next week because of the, the new law that's been passed on January the 8th, it took, 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 took effect, okay, that if you preach the truth of the gospel and you tell people, 
about what it means to be transformed. They call it conversion therapy. We just call it conversion. You're liable to up to five years in prison in Canada beginning January 8th. That was yesterday. So the Canadian pastors have asked if we in America would preach on this on the 16th, and I am. Because we understand we don't convert anybody. God does. God is a converter. He's a transformer. We just preach the truth of the gospel. And so we need people to understand what that truth is. Because our God transforms unlovable humanity. We are not worthy of love. We're not worthy of anything good. But God in his mercy and grace, he saves us. His love is unbelievable. You got your Bible? Turn to 1 John chapter 3. Let me show this to you. God hates sin so much. God hates the sinner so much, listen carefully, that he's willing to send his son to die for those he hates. Think about that. God hates sin and the sinner so much he is willing to send his son to die for them. That's the magnitude of God's wonderful love. That's what led John to say these words, 1 John 3, verse number 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God and such we are. Now remember, in John's gospel, he never refers to himself as John. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Because he was so taken by the fact that God would love him because he was so unlovable. So he only referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so now he says, what manner of love is this that the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God? The word he uses is a phrase called potapen, which means from another dimension. It's otherworldly. It's not of this world, it's not of this race, it's from another world, it's from another dimension. It's an otherworldly kind of love. Why? Because you don't see that kind of love in this world. You only see it in another world. It's the same phrase used in the book of Matthew when there was this great storm on the sea and the disciples were fearful for their, for their death and Christ stills the sea with a spoken word. And what the disciples say? What manner of man is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Same phrase is used. Potapen. What other worldly kind of power is this? What other dimensional kind of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Because there's nothing in this human realm, nothing in this dimension that we have ever seen that does that. He must be from another dimension, from another world. And he is, from the heavenlies. Same phrase is used over in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, where it says this, 
But the day of the Lord, verse number 10, will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what manner of people are you to be? What sort of people are you to be? What otherworldly kind of people should you be? You should be the kind of people from another dimension, from another sphere, because you're otherworldly now, living in holy and godly conduct. We can do that simply because we are partakers of the divine nature of God. Therefore, we can live a life from another dimension that is so foreign to this life that people will see the living God in us. So John says in 1 John 3, 1, what manner of love is this? What kind of love is this? That's from another dimension that the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Can you imagine what God has done? This is this what makes salvation so supernatural. He takes people from Satan's kingdom, transfers them from one kingdom to another kingdom in a moment of time. He justifies them. He sanctifies them. He sets them apart for his purposes simply because of the magnitude of his love. You see, that's what God does. And that's why the celebration of Christmas is continual. Because there's this transformation of everybody around us that's unlovable, but needs to understand and experience the true love and nature of the living God. Listen, God is love. Right? Unless you know the God of love, you can't love. Listen to what the Bible says. 1 John chapter 4, verse number 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. The unbeliever cannot love that way. There is an eros kind of love, an exotic kind of love. There is a storge kind of love, a familial kind of love. There's a phileo kind of love, which is a, a friendship kind of love. But the agape love cannot be had by those who do not know the God who is love. Only Christians can do that. Because God does that. And he is the God who gives his life away sacrificially. You see, this attribute of God is so misunderstood. But yet... It's so powerful. Because you see, God's love is visible. Is it not? God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we are yet sinners, unlovable, because God hates all those who do iniquity. God hates the soul of those who do violence. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's a visible demonstration of the love of God. He would send his son to die for the unlovely so they in turn could be lovely. Died for those who are unworthy so they could become worthy. Died for those who are unrighteous so that they might become righteous. And God demonstrated that love. That's the, the agape kind of love that God demonstrates. It's a visible kind of love. But not only is it visible, it's beneficial. 
Romans chapter 5 says these words. Romans chapter 5 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Who are the ungodly? All those who are separated from God. He died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's the benefit of God's love. We are the recipients of his life. He now lives in us. God's love is visible. God's love is beneficial. God's love is unconditional. It's unconditional for God to love the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's an unconditional kind of love. Why? Because we're ungodly. We're unrighteous. We're unholy. We're unlovely. So what does God do? He sends his son to die for all those his soul hates, that they might understand the beauty of his forgiveness. It's an unconditional kind of love. That's why it's so important. You can't say, God, why do you love me? Because his love is not just uh, unconditional, right? Simply because he told Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse number 7 and 8, that I love you not because of your strength, or because you're more powerful than any other nation. I love you simply because I chose to love you. You see, that's what God does. He chooses to love us. And agape kind of love is a, is a choice. We choose to love other people. That's why no matter who you're married to, you can love them. Because you choose to love them. If you choose not to love them, that's on you, Right? But you choose to love them because that's the kind of love that God himself demonstrates. And if his love, Romans 5, 5, has been now shed abroad in our hearts, our love should be a visible kind of love, always demonstrated. Our love should be a beneficial kind of love. Our love should be an unconditional kind of love. Our love should be a volitional kind of love, right? It's a choice. If I say I love you because of what you do, my love for you is conditional. If I love you because you're smart, it's conditional on your smartness. If I love you because you're beautiful, it's conditioned on your beauty. If I love you because you're rich, it's conditioned on your riches. But if I love you because I choose to, what else is there? That's God's love. That's why husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church. You choose to. There's nothing about her that makes her lovable. You just love them. There's nothing about you that makes you lovable. She just chooses to love you. That's God's love. That's the attribute that transforms people's lives. The love of God is an is a emotional love because the Bible says that God's love rejoices. It's also a judicial kind of love because it rejoices in the truth, not untruth. Love only rejoices in truth. 
not in lies. And that's why God's love is so judicial, because it's based on his truth. God's love is eternal. Jeremiah 31.3, he's loved us with an everlasting kind of love. Think about that. It's an everlasting love. God's love is transformational. Why? Because he transforms our inner being that we might be like our God. That kind of love is a sensational kind of love because it's a sacrificial kind of love. 1 John chapter 4, verse number 9 says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. That's a sensational kind of love. That love is a transformational kind of love. That's what we celebrate. We celebrate the transformation of unlovable humanity. That God in his grace, his mercy, and his patience bears with us that at that point we hear the gospel, give our life to Christ, and realize the magnitude of that love. So amazing. I wish I could spend more time on that, but I want to move on to point number nine. And point number nine simply is this. That is the... the expectation of unimaginable glory. The expectation of unimaginable glory. Listen, everybody in the room lives in expectation. Some of you are expecting me to be done early. Bad expectation. Some of you are already expecting a good lunch today. Some of you are expecting a a glorious nap this afternoon. Some of you are expecting a raise this week, a new job. Some of you are expecting to get married this year, to have a child this year. We all live in expectation. Some of us are expecting next Christmas already. We live in expectation. Every one of us does. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 9, I have not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered in the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. There is this expectation because of his first coming that motivates us to live in light of his second coming, of unimaginable glory. On my way to work today, I had a chance to, to talk to my mom. My mom is uh, going into hospice today and tomorrow and not expected to live throughout, throughout the rest of this week, and she's going to go home and be with the Lord. But my mom is living in expectation. She lives in expectation to be with the Lord, to pass from this life to the next life. She knows that. Granted, her mind has, has been so deteriorated over the last couple of months and, and last couple of years because of dementia, but she knows the Lord. And she anticipates glory. You know, I I was raised by two parents who lived in expectation. My father, who had ALS and died 18 months later, lived in expectation, a constant state of expectation. I'm going to go home and be with the Lord any day, any day, any day. And after he died, my mom lived in expectation. I can't wait to go home and be with the Lord. I've lived my life. It's time to go. What is God waiting on? I said, I don't know. But he's waiting for some, for some reason. 
But now the doctors have said she only has a few days left on this earth, but she has an eternity in the presence of the living God. She lives in expectation. The expectation of unimaginable glory. That's the way all of us should live. Anticipating what God's going to do. We studied in our study of the book of Daniel. I'll keep saying it on Wednesday nights. I'll say it again today because it's so important. The clearer you see the future, the cleaner you stand in the present. The clearer you see the future, the more courageous you are in the present. The clearer you see the future, the more consecrated you are in the present. The clearer you see the future, the more committed and courageous you are in the present. Everything you live today is determined by how you see tomorrow, the future. That's why prophecy is so important. That's why that's the hope of the believer. He who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he himself is pure. If you have a warped view of the future, you're going to live a warped life today. If you have a misconstrued view of the future, it's going to hinder your life today. How you see the future, how you understand the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Revelation, the coming of the Messiah, the Olivet Discourse, all those prophecies surrounding the coming of the Messiah, as you, as you see them, it will determine how you live today. That's why we celebrate the expectation of unimaginable glory. Because that's how we live. We can't wait to be with the Lord. And think about it. In the scriptures, we're called all kinds of things, right? We're called Christians. We're called followers of Christ. We're called disciples, right? We're called ambassadors. We're called servants. We're called fellow heirs with Christ. We're called the bride. There's all kinds of, of titles that you and I have based on our relationship with the living God. But there's one title that helps you understand the future. There's one title that stands above the others that makes you able to see the future clearly. And that is, in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3, the person called the overcomer. The overcomer. Because the overcomer receives the promises from the Spirit of God. Who is the overcomer? Well, 1 John tells us, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's the overcomer. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3. It's a, it's a Greek word, nikao. And the Greeks always believed that man never won the victory. But the gods won the victory. So they had a goddess of victory. She was the Greek god, Nike. 
And they would pray to that goddess before they went to war. Because they believed with her help, they would win the victory. Well, John would pick up on that, understand the importance of it. Paul would pick up on that and use that word, nikao, to speak of the overcomer. That's how the word overcomer is translated. Why? Because you are the victorious warrior. You are the winning one. That's the overcomer. That's why Paul says in Hebrews, uh, Romans 8, verse number 37, you are huper nike, overwhelming conquerors. You're just not a simple conqueror. You are an overwhelming conqueror. Why? Because of him who loved you. You just don't win barely. You win victoriously because you're an overcomer. And in Revelation 2 and 3, John spells out for us what the overcomer is going to receive in glory. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, the church of Ephesus, he says, To him who overcomes, verse number 7, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Wow. We get to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Why do we have to eat in heaven? Why eat in heaven? We don't need to eat. We have glorified bodies. Why do we have to eat from the tree of life? The Bible says in the book of Revelation, a little further, chapter 22, it says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of a street on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Whoa, what do I need to be healed for? Aren't I perfect? Absolutely. So what is the tree of life doing in the paradise of God. Have you ever sat down to eat just to enjoy what you're eating? And don't you wish you could enjoy eating something without ever getting full? Like ice cream sundaes, <laughs> big juicy steaks, big juicy burgers, french fries, all that healthy stuff. Don't you wish you could just eat it over and over again and never get full? You see, in heaven, the tree of life represents joy and festivity. It's not that you need to eat to stay healthy. It's that you eat just for the joy of eating. God provides that through the tree of life. And then in verse number 10 and 11 to the church of Smyrna, it says, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He overcomes, will not be hurt by the second death. Wow. So not only is there joy, and not only is there festivity, but there is immortality and eternity. Because you have the crown, which is life. And with that comes never facing the second death. All those who are unbelievers face the second death. But those of us who are believers only die once and then glory. But the second death is for all those who do not know the Lord. 
because we live in the presence of God. The church of Pergamum, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse number 17, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. We talked about this last week. There is this, this, this quality of life. What's the hidden manna? Well, Christ is the bread of life, right? He is the manna that comes down from heaven. But the unbeliever doesn't know of that manna. It's hidden from them. But to the believer, he receives it. He gets a, a white stone, which proves that he is no longer guilty. He's been set free. He gets a new identity because he has a new name written on that stone. And then in chapter 26 of chapter 2, it says, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the power are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know what happens when you get to, when you get to glory? You get authority. Authority. You have authority over the nations. God grants you his authority. Take it from Psalm 2, where the Messiah has all authority given unto him, right? And Matthew 28 tells us that all authority has been given to the Lord. But now he grants the overcomer the authority to rule the nations. So you have authority, you have responsibility, you have intimacy because he gives you, as the text says, the morning star. Who's that? Jesus Revelation 22, he is the bright morning star. You have Christ, the intimacy. What is heaven? Heaven is living in the presence of Christ, continually, without end, experiencing the joyous communion with the living God. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 3, verse number 5, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Wow, God's going to confess your name. You will never be blotted out of the book of life. That's security. That's eternal security. I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. I will give him white robes, white robes celebrating, uh, signifying the celebration of all that glory represents the white raiments that we have signifying the purity and the righteousness we have in Christ himself. How great is that? And then it says this, verse 21. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 12 of chapter 3. He overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Wow. Ownership. Citizenship. That's what God gives us. We're going to be, our name's going to be on the pillars, you know. You ever been to those places where, where people's names, because they gave so much to uh, an organization that their name was on a plaque someplace, Right? Do you know your name was written down in glory on a pillar in the city of God? Because you have supreme notoriety in heaven. Because God grants you that. You might not have any notoriety down here, but you have all kinds of notoriety and glory. Because your name is written down on a pillar in the temple 
of the living God. How great is that? This is, this, this is so amazing. Verse 21, he overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Do you know when you get to heaven, you actually get to sit on the throne of the living God. There's this expectation of unimaginable glory that this side of eternity, we will never comprehend. We will never understand. We can't. We just can't. Because we live in a sinful environment encased in sinful flesh. But one day, one day all that will be gone. And we'll be in the presence of the living God. That's why the celebration of Christmas is continual. There's always this expectation, right? Wake up every day expecting this is the day that the Lord's going to come again. That's how I live my life. I live every day in expectation. This must be the day. It's got to be the day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we should always go to bed disappointed that the Lord didn't come that day. Don't be disappointed in anything else. Just be disappointed in the fact that God didn't come that day. But rejoice in the fact that it wasn't God's time to come yet. That there's another soul that needs to be saved. Another person needs to hear the gospel. And maybe God's going to use you to preach the gospel to that one soul. But you see, this is why Christmas is continual. Because we live every day in expectation. We live every day understanding that God transforms people's lives that need to be turned inside out. So my prayer for you and for me is that the divine invitation to celebrate will not just be for a few weeks, a few moments in time, but would truly characterize our lives. That we live in celebration mode all the time for one reason and one reason only, because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And for that, we will always give him glory. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for today. We are grateful, Lord, because you've granted us this opportunity to worship you. We are so blessed. We thank you for the season, the season that expresses to us the longevity of the celebration, that we might live constantly celebrating why you came, for who you came, and what you've done in the lives of those you save. Wow. You've taken unlovable humanity and transformed them. You've taken our lives, as dirty and as filthy as they are, and you turn it inside out. Even the rich young ruler who went away from you in unbelief, you had love for him. We thank you, Lord, for that great love that goes beyond anything we can comprehend. But we are so grateful that we have embraced it and you demonstrated it toward us. May we live in light of that every single day, living in expectation of what you will do when you arrive because you are coming again. And for that, we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.